Heavenly Father, we come to you humbly this morning, recognizing that the, the word that you will bring to us day and over, today and over the next several months is a word that we cannot receive, we cannot understand it, and we certainly cannot live in accordance with it unless your Spirit enables us to do so. So I pray, Lord, that you would have your Spirit work mightily on us over these next several weeks and months. That as we work our way through this most incredible historical narrative, learning about the Holy Spirit's work through the apostles and through the church, that we would not only be edified, Lord, but we'd be encouraged and we'd be spurred on to that same glorious work. Father, I pray that we would not make our way through this study and be unchanged at the end. I pray, Lord, we would not listen with academic ears being feeding our, having our minds fed but not our hearts filled. I pray instead, Father, that you would use this book of your New Testament spoken to Dr. Luke by the Holy Spirit to ignite a fire in us that truly lasts. A power in the Spirit to really do your work as a body in Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would do what only you can do, and that is invigorate us, encourage us, compel us to be the holy people set apart for your glory that we truly are in our homes, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, and even as we gather here, Father. We're asking for transformation of heart and mind that we might be as Christ is for your glory. In his name, amen. Amen. Hmm. It is daunting. <laughs> it is daunting. Uh, I remember years ago, a pastor of a relatively large church, he wanted to do the Gospel of Luke, and he had to get permission from the elders. He said, are you okay with me taking as long as it's going to take me to get through Luke. Um, if you know the book of Acts, it is, I mean, it is a book that you have to know. In some Bible reading plans, it's actually a book that is read all the time, every, every day, year after year, because it's that important, according to some. And I would agree. Uh, we, we know it as the book of Acts. Throughout church history, it's been identified as the Acts of the Apostles. But I think there's a better title. I, I think we should call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through the apostolic church. Because it's not just the apostles, it's the church that the Spirit moves mightily in. Um, we can say that this book is truly unique. It lays out an historical perspective for us, giving us a 30-year time frame from Pentecost to Paul's imprisonment in Rome, showing how the Holy Spirit worked to grow the church in the first century. It gives us great clarity also on some of Jesus' teachings in the gospel to the local church that we see solidified in the book of Acts. And it is, I would say, uh, imperative if you are going to try to examine some of the New Testament letters because it offers context, authorship, recipients, time, location of when many of those letters were written. So we, we want to know Acts for lots of reasons. Um, it is an historical narrative the book of Acts is a narrative told by the Spirit to Dr. Luke for you. If you did not do well in history because your history teacher did not make it entertaining, I pray you do not respond in similar fashion to the book of Acts. It is, it is historical narrative, and, and both secular and biblical historians comment on how Dr. Luke recorded his history, extraordinary history. But it is more than that. It's a grand narrative. And you, when you read through Acts, it takes us on the journey, this 30-year journey of the church growing through the apostolic ministry. We go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. We move into to Asia Minor and we move into Europe and we end the book at the center of the Gentile world in Rome where Paul is imprisoned. And it chronicles the apostolic encounters it chronicles them coming into contact with a hostile people group, corrupt 
rulers, oppressive governments, near-death experiences. It's filled with tens of thousands of people being converted to Christ. The planting of churches, miracles, imprisonments, supernatural escapes, shipwrecks, courtroom dramas. You, you read through Acts, and if you're bored, there's something wrong. It is a great story. It is a true story, and it's filled with the work the Holy Spirit was doing through sinners saved by grace just like us, just like us. And that's why it is so much more than just good history or a good story. It is filled with teaching about the character and nature of God and how we, his people, are supposed to live. It's filled with apostolic theology. In fact, one-third of the entire book is made up of 24 speeches Eight by the Apostle Peter, nine by the Apostle Paul, and in it we have some of the deeper theology developed in the New Testament. So it's more than history, it's more than a good story, and it's more than theology. We chose the book of Acts because we believe as elders that if we hear God speak to us through this book, that there will be real change in this church. We do not want this to be an academic exercise. There are several aspects of the book of Acts that will be unique, and we'll look at those. But I believe that the book of Acts, the apostolic ministry, and the early church provide a template, a way of life for every single local community to see the power of the Spirit, live in community, love in community, and bring the gospel to the nations. So if you are just thinking about this as you know, the chronological record of, of Paul's mission trips, or you're just thinking about these great speeches filled with theology, I pray that you see it so much more, that it is intended to invigorate you, your heart, your mind, to be on mission too. That you can say, that mission continues, and I'm called into it. And by God's grace, and it will require the Holy Spirit, we will. You won't hear and leave. You'll hear, be changed, and do. Amen? Yeah, what a good way to, to think about this book. The theme of the sermon today is real simple. You heard it read, Psalm 127.1, Unless the Lord builds the house, the labors labor in vain. They build in vain. And Jesus, our dear Lord, makes it so clear that unless the Holy Spirit builds His church, we will labor in vain too. We will labor in vain too. And so I'd like us to dive into this great book without drowning today. So I, I'm not, you know, you got to pace yourself. This isn't a sprint, right? This is a marathon. So there are going to be things that you're going to say, why didn't you talk about this? Because we're going to talk about it for several months. So I'd like to do this today. I'd like to talk about the context of the book, number one. Number two, the preparation for building. And number three, the commission to build. So the context, the preparation for building, and the commission to build. Look at number one, the context, verse one and two. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, if you're at all bummed that I'm spending an entire point on establishing context, if you've ever taken any class, usually spend the first day or two, depending upon the length of the class, reading through what we used to call a green sheet. I don't know if they do green sheets anymore, but you get it, and the, the, the teacher would go through the syllabus. It's important to know what we're talking about. Why are we studying this? What is this book about? Who's writing it? So I'm going to do it pretty quickly, but I, I want to set a stage here as we look into the preparation for the building of God's church. So try to Try to focus as much as you can and store this in your long-term memory, if you would. Um, we have an introduction here, and it's so helpful. I mean, I, there, there are several books in the Bible that are disputed. Who wrote it? Who are they writing it to? Acts is not one, nor is the Gospel of Luke. In fact, we have here in the first two verses so much information that help us interpret the context of the book. you got to know the context. You've got to know who wrote it, who was it being written to, what was the purpose of the book, when was it being written. If you don't know those things, you're doing a lot of guessing. By God's grace, we don't have to do much guessing in the Gospel of Acts. Look at verse 1 again. In the first book, that's how the author starts. And the first book is the Gospel of Luke. And that's also not disputed. The Gospel of Luke is the first book being referred to here by Dr. Luke. Who is the author? 
It is the longest of the four Gospels. Most of you probably know Dr. Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and he wrote the longest Gospel account, the Gospel according to Luke. And when we look at the vocabulary and you look at the grammar of Acts and Luke, and you look at all the we passages that talk about Paul and Luke being together, especially on mission, and you look at the introduction and you look at the recipient, Theophilus, there's almost universal consensus, and this is very encouraging, that Dr. Luke, the physician, Paul refers to him as such in Colossians chapter 4. He's not a doctor of theology. He's an actual medical doctor. He is the author, most believe, of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And from other New Testament letters, we know that, that Luke was with Paul a lot. He was with him in Colossae. He was with him when he wrote Philemon. He was with him when he wrote 2 Timothy. And we believe he was with him when he wrote this book when Paul was in prison in Rome. As a physician, we know that he was educated and had some social standing. What we do know from the book, this is without question, that he was a first-rate historian. So any historiographer will tell you this is excellent history, believer and non-believer alike. And we know that he was a master theologian. He recorded clearly what the apostles taught and it was first-rate theology. So the author of the book, I think without question, is Dr. Luke. And he tells us right off the beginning, the recipient is the, this is what we're told actually in the gospel, the most excellent Theophilus. Now, we know nothing about Theophilus. Some speculate the name Theophilus, love for God, lover of God, friend of God. Some speculate he's talking to all Jews and all Christians I don't think so. I think it's a real person um, because we believe that Paul was in Rome. It was likely a, a Roman official who was sympathetic to the cause or had actually become a Christian. Um, and some argue, and I think it's probably that's that he was Paul's publisher, that it was sent to Paul's publisher intending to write this down and distribute it to Jews and Christians alike. And I, I think that's probably the, the best take on it. Um, some Theologians actually think that the book was written after the destruction of the temple, early to mid-70s A.D. Um, in fact, you would get a lot of the non-conservative um, uh, Bible students would say that. I, I don't think so. I think it was written before that. Um, most of the conservative uh, commentaries will say it was written sometime between 60 and 64 A.D. That's when Paul was in prison in Rome. We believe Luke was with him writing this book, probably getting a lot of information from Paul. Um, so I think that's our best bet, probably early, 60, 62, 63, 64, somewhere in there. And we know the purpose of it. It's a sequel, and it's a great sequel. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm hesitant to go see the sequel, especially the first one's really, really good, because you think there's no way they're going to top it. Well, the book of Acts is equal to, in supremacy, the gospel of Luke. And we'll reveal this again in verse 1. Look said, in the first book, the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt, this is Luke speaking, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so, in the second book, he's going to continue with what Jesus does, continues to do and teach through the Holy Spirit. The proclamation of the Gospel. Salvation by grace through faith in the resurrected Son. And the purpose by God was to take this Gospel that was clearly delineated in the Gospel of Luke, and through the Holy Spirit and the early church do what? Take it to the end of the earth. Acts is part two of Luke's Gospel, and that purpose has not changed. Listen to Luke chapter one. Luke writes this, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may now listen to this, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Theophilus has already had a Christian education, and Luke says, I wrote the Gospel of Luke, and I'm writing the Gospel of Acts so that you can have absolute certainty that what I'm saying is true. It's true. These are not stories. These are not myths. Because you read the Gospel of, of Luke, and you read Acts, and you think, Mm, there's so much supernatural power. There's so many supernatural things taking place. Hard to believe. 
So Acts, like the Gospel of Luke, was written to provide historical certainty, not only for Theophilus, but for every Jew and Christian who would read it then and now. That all of this, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ministry of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is saying it's true. And oh, by the way, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the apostolic ministry, the establishment of the church, Paul making it all the way to the room, oh, by the way, it's all true. It's all historical fact. And Luke was, he wanted Theophilus to believe this not only because it was true, he wanted the early Jews and Christians to believe this not only because this was the actual record, he wants us to believe it, not just to be good Christian historians. Dr. Luke, without question, wanted us to read, understand, and believe this history that our faith, listen, might increase. He wants us to know these truths that our faith might increase because Dr. Luke knows what you know, that when your faith increases, you'll participate in the mission of Christ. When your faith grows, you won't be a bystander. You won't read these stories and feel a sense of excitement but not join in. Dr. Luke recorded these things that we might have certainty they are true and in their certainty grow our faith and in the growth of our faith we find ourselves on mission. We are participating in the great work of bringing the gospel how far? To the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. He wants us, if we could go and say, hey, Dr. Luke, what would be your pleasure for Cambrian Park Baptist Church? He would say, read this, believe it, and then join in the mission that's taking place this very hour. This is not just an historical record. It is revealing the great adventure of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you know and that you are to participate in. Okay? So the book of Acts is part two of Luke's gospel. It's an historical narrative. It's written by the physician Dr. Luke sometime before 64 AD. Certainly written to Theophilus, but likely Jews and Christians at the time in Rome for the purpose of truth-telling that faith might increase and work might increase as well. Okay, now you're all versed on the context. You got it? All right. Yeah, you have that. You have that student look in your eyes. Like, all right. We got to know who's writing it. We got to know what's going on in order to understand it, right? So the, the question I have for you is, why does, why does he start with Jesus before the ascension? And why does he pick up here? He kind of, there's an overlap between the end of Luke chapter 24 and the beginning of Acts chapter 1. So the reason is this. Look at verse chapter 2, the preparation for the building of God's church. Look at verse 3. He, Jesus, presented himself alive to them, the disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, if you, if you know the gospel accounts, or if you know um, the gospel of Luke, he had already chronicled Jesus appearing multiple times, the multiple witnesses during his resurrection. First to Mary Magdalene and the other women at the tomb, then to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then he appeared to Peter and to the others. We're told this, listen, in Luke chapter 24, he stands before the disciples and Jesus says to them, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Jesus says, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In fact, we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that during that 40 days that Jesus, from his resurrection to his ascension, We're told by the Apostle Paul that Jesus appeared to over 500 people in the flesh. In the flesh. These are the many proofs that Christ is referring to here. His bodily resurrection, as we saw last week, was absolutely essential to the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostles had to believe it. And they had to say, we are eyewitnesses to the fact that this man who was crucified was died, he died, he was buried, and now he has risen. And they would testify to this because apart from the resurrection, as we saw last week, 
1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. No resurrection, no gospel. No resurrection, no salvation. And so this was the turning point and would be, and I would say still is today, for the reception of the gospel. If you've ever shared the gospel or proclaimed the gospel to someone, I know that one of the things I struggled with most was this idea that a man rose from the dead. He rose bodily from the dead. Yes. Hmm. Sounds a bit strange. Apart from Christ, you'd say, I will not believe it. So he established early on, Christ had to establish with multiple people that he actually did bodily rise because apart from his resurrection, there is no gospel and there is no salvation. And so the apostles and many others, they were eyewitnesses to these things. Symbolic of the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the desert, we know that Jesus spent 40 days after his baptism in the desert preparing for his ministry. And so our Lord, so gracious and kind, spends 40 days preparing the disciples for their ministry. Look at the latter part of verse 3, speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus spent 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. Earlier in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus was sending out the 72 to preach the gospel, he said to them this in verse 9. He said, heal the sick and say to them what? The kingdom of God has come near you. The kingdom of God has come near you. And then at the end of the, of the, the gospel account in Luke, In his resurrected form, this is the kingdom teaching. Listen closely. This is from Luke chapter 24, verses 45 and following. We're told that Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then he said, you are witnesses of these things. And so our Lord himself calls upon the testimony of the Old Testament to say, the kingdom of God has come in my life, death, and resurrection. You know, we think of kingdom of God and we think of Christ reigning upon his throne and we think of the kingdom coming again and Jesus says, no, no, no. It's what I have already done. And so the apostolic mission was to proclaim these facts, was to tell people about the life, death, and resurrection of the Savior. Not just as bystanders and not as hearsay, but as eyewitnesses. They could say, we saw the kingdom come. The kingdom is not just near. The kingdom, because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, is here. And therefore, their proclamation would be repentance and faith for eternal life. Or what? Or judgment. Because the kingdom has, in fact, come. Look at verse 4. Speaking of Jesus again, while staying with them during the 40 days... He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. So prior to his ascension, which we'll look at last week, which is a a theological tenet in our faith, and we just don't talk about it much. Hopefully we'll get a better grip on it next week. He says, you got to wait here. Don't go anywhere. Because the promise of the Father is coming. Now, we all know the promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit. In fact, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we should remember that dialogue that Jesus had in the Gospel of John at the Last Supper with the disciples. Listen to what he said. So they already heard this. They already know it. They don't understand it. They still don't understand it after this verse. John chapter 14 and 15 and 16 says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. He will bear witness about me. He will guide you into all truth. And my favorite, chapter 16, verse 16, he will be with you forever. This guide, this friend, the Holy Spirit. So he says you you can't leave Jerusalem Because Pentecost is coming, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to descend upon you. Jesus says, listen, you don't get this yet, but you're going to. 
that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, everything I'm telling you, you will not be able to do. Not only will you not understand all that I taught, and they were still confused at this point in time, but they would not have the power to preach and teach and heal as God so decreed. In other words, had they not waited, no Holy Spirit, no power, no church, no you. No Cambrian Park Baptist Church. Aren't you glad they were patient? Aren't you glad they said, all right, we're not going to go back to Galilee and fish some more. We'll stay here and we will wait. Look at verse 5. Jesus clarified now, for John baptized with water, and they knew exactly what he was talking about, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, Pentecost was 50 days after Passover, so we're 40 days in, and Jesus leaves right after saying this. So they got 10 days they got to wait for Pentecost to come. The ministry of John the Baptist, we know that was a ministry of repentance, not saving power. In fact, John said himself, Luke chapter 3, I baptize with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And you think, oh, fire. Now I got it. That's Pentecost because the Spirit descended upon them like tongues of fire, remember? Well, we're going to see that, so if you don't, you're still in good shape. The Holy Spirit descending in a unique, unrepeatable event on this holy day. And Jesus makes it clear that it's only a matter of days away. In fact, he said to them back in Luke 24, 49, he said, you need to stay in the city until, our, until you are clothed with power from on high. And that's the key word. Until you are clothed with power from on high. The power the disciples needed, and here's the direct immediate application, the power you need in order to live this Christian life and engage in this Christian calling. This would be the beginning of the apostolic ministry. The proclamation of the gospel accompanied, as we will see, by supernatural works. This would also be the beginning of the church age, a time when God, through the preaching and teaching of the apostles, would make dead people alive. He would regenerate their dead hearts and cause them to repent and believe and follow Christ, and then what? Participate too. In other words, this great movement that we see taking place at Pentecost was not just so people could be saved and rest in their salvation. It was so they could be saved, forgiven of their sins, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, receiving eternal life, and then join the church and do the work too. Jesus was going to send the Spirit to fulfill the promise that he made to the disciples back in Matthew 16 when he said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. My beloved, everything we're going to read in this book, the work of the apostles, the conversion of thousands, the planting of churches, it could not have taken place without the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling in believers. There is no story after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ if the Holy Spirit does not come. There is no story and there is no faith. Many apart from God, dwelling in and working through Him, have attempted to do this work, this kingdom work, without the power of the Holy Spirit. And the end is always the same. It's destruction. Nothing's changed, my beloved. For 2,000 years, the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, has been able to prevail against the gates of Hades, as Jesus promises, because the church has been dependent upon the unifying power of the Holy Spirit. And just as the disciples waited in Jerusalem for the Spirit to come, churches that are wise will also wait upon the Holy Spirit in striving to do all that God has called us to do. Now this is not a call to inaction. This is not, I'm going to wait on the Spirit and not do anything until I hear an audible voice. Guess what? You'll be waiting for your whole life. God has spoken through His Word. 
What the Spirit does is take that word and make it alive in your heart and compel you to do that which we already know we're supposed to do. It's not an activity. It is working faithfully in being completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do the work. Now, if you haven't heard anything I've said to this point, I want you to listen closely. I do believe we live right now in a spiritual vacuum. I do believe that most of our lives are depleted from the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe this church and most Western churches are not walking and living in accordance with the power of the Spirit, and it's one of the reasons that we individually and collectively are so weak. And there's one thing I'd love to see change for myself, for you, and for our church, is a real exercising of the power of the Spirit of God here. Even this morning as we prayed during our prayer furnace, I thought, is the Spirit present Is the Spirit acting? Are hearts being changed? Are we just saying words? I don't have an answer for you. But I do believe that we, living in accordance with the power of the Spirit, would be different than we are now. Jesus understood that. The apostles understood that. That apart from the Spirit, my beloved, you're in the flesh, and your flesh cannot do kingdom work. I mean, most of us believe that in order for a person to be saved, they must be made alive, right? Did Jesus not say, verily, verily, I say unto you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we believe that. And yet how often do we share the gospel with a friend or a family member or a coworker, and we don't pray about it? We don't petition God, we don't cry out to God, save this soul. We think with our our wise words, and maybe our, the way we live our lives, that God will just do that. And maybe He will. God is abundantly gracious. But our, our, our evangelism, apart from submitting to the Word of God and praying fervently and asking the church to pray, one of the things that we're doing during our prayer furnaces on Sunday morning is we're, we're praying for people by name. Why do we do that? They're not going to be saved apart from the Holy Spirit. Our disciple-making, brothers and sisters, For those of you engaged in it, if you're not, you need to be. The Bible calls us to it. Our disciple-making, not bathed in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just coffee. It's just dialogue. But when you open the Bible and you spend time in prayer and you're seeking to be changed and change others in the Spirit, real transformative work happens. And as a church, I mean, as a church, We've talked about being unified as a family. We've talked about growing in our love for one another. We've talked about our collective ministry here as a church to one another and to this community. How can we do that apart from the Holy Spirit? We cannot. We will labor in vain. We'll present Christianity. It may look like Christianity, but it will not be unless the Spirit is actively involved and we are submitting completely, 100% total dependence upon him. It can't be 50% spirit, 50% church. It's the Holy Spirit working through his children. Our church requires this. Your evangelism requires it. Your discipleship requires it. Every ministry requires it. To engage in any of the things we're called to as Christians apart from the Holy Spirit, it is foolishness. And if you've ever tried, you have failed. And you say, why, have I, why did I fail? Why was I so tired at the end? Why was I so angry at the end? Not in the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, so first we see the context of the book. Number two, we see the preparation of the book. Jesus saying, don't go anywhere because you need the Spirit because I'm going to tell you to do something you can't do without Him. Same for us, all right? I got one more point. The commission to build. The commission to build. So here's a spoiler alert for you. If you have no desire over the next several months to be changed by the Spirit of God and engage in the work, this is going to be a bad study for you. If you want to come and listen and maybe be a bit entertained by these amazing stories that are true but not be changed, this is not going to be good for you. Commission to build. For three and a half years, Jesus Christ taught 
on the kingdom of God. He proclaimed the gospel. He performed many miracles that people would believe. And then as prophesied in the Old Testament, and from his own lips, he what? He was crucified, he died, he was buried, and as we celebrated last week, we believe, we proclaim, he rose from the tomb on the third day, overcoming the power of sin and death for all who repent and believe. Now, after 40 days of teaching the kingdom of God, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, after teaching the kingdom of God to his disciples, the disciples want to know, is it time? This is what, verse 6 has to be one where you just pause and you think, oh, these poor souls, we'd be no different. They want to know, all right, Lord, are we at the end of the story? I mean, you died, you rose from the dead, you've been here for 40 days now. Is it the time when you're going to establish the messianic day of the Lord? Are you going to take David's throne and rule over Israel? Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, speaking of the disciples, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? All the teaching, all the miracles, Jesus bodily raised in their midst for 40 days, and the apostles are still holding on to their version of the kingdom coming. Long time. Be gracious. The Holy Spirit had yet to be poured out. They're holding tight to a version they wanted to believe. We're no different, my beloved. We're no different. They believed, they wanted to believe the restoration of Israel's national independence, certainly freedom from Rome, but they were thinking bigger than that. They were thinking days of David and Solomon with their their Savior who died and now is alive, seated upon the throne. And of course, they're going to be in that court too. And so that we will be very gracious with them, even though they were misled, they're, they're actually thinking Old Testament. Because the Old Testament teaches, specifically in Joel chapter 2, that when the Holy Spirit descends on Pentecost, Israel will be restored. And so they're thinking, this must be it. He's talking about the Holy Spirit coming. This must be it. Israel will be restored. They thought it was the end of the story. They were a few years off. A few years Jesus' response was, I imagine, unexpected, and maybe for some, if not all, not what they wanted to hear. Look at verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's a rebuke. It's a loving rebuke. They wanted to know, is now the time? Is now the day? Are you going to ascend the throne? And Jesus says to them in so many words, it's none of your business. I love you, it's none of your business. In fact, during his earthly ministry, remember, they wanted to know the same thing. And he said, at this point in time, I do not know, only the Father knows. Don't ask me again. The disciples would have a significant role to play as witnesses to the coming of the day of the Lord, to the fact that the kingdom has, in fact, come. But it was not for them to know the day nor the hour as we'll see in the next couple of verses, they had work to do. They had a lot of work to do. And so for them to speculate on the day or the hour was, you say, it's useless. And it's useless today too. You know that. I'm not saying don't study your eschatology and try to get a firm grasp on what your understanding of the Bible teaches on Christ coming again. But over this past year, with all the, the pandemic and people sheltering in place, there's been so much dialogue about the return of Christ. Spending lots of time and energy trying to guess the day or the hour. I think we should go back here and hear Jesus say, it's none of your business. It does you no good to spend time speculating on the day or the hour when Christ returns and not do the work you've been called to do until he comes. That's a bad place to be. He could come today. He could come tomorrow. It may be another thousand years. That's not our business. Our business is doing the work that he's called and equipped us to do. And then when he does come, or when he brings you home, you'll hear him say, well done, you speculator of the end times. 
No, you won't hear that. You'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter my rest. Enter my rest. Look at verse 8. They want to know the time. He said, it's none of your business. Verse 8, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's what he taught in verse 5. We're going to see it in the next couple chapters at Pentecost. Latter part of verse 8, though, and then I'll close. He said, you'll receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. A verse you know well because we've taught missions here and this is a primary missional verse. The apostles wanted power. You know that, right? They wanted Christ to take the seat of David and they wanted to be in the royal court. Christ is going to take the seat of David in the heavens and they're going to receive a position but not yet. There was still so much work to be done. They would receive a power not at the left and right hand of Christ reigning in Jerusalem. They would receive power infinitely greater. They'd receive the power of God in the form of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. The power they absolutely needed in order to fulfill the great commission that Christ was going to call them to. So instead of their ruling with Jesus on an earthly throne immediately which was their kingdom plan, they had some difficult work ahead of them in order to fulfill God's kingdom plan. They'd be empowered to be what? To be witnesses. To be witnesses. Israel was supposed to be God's witness to the world. We're told in Isaiah chapter 43, God said, you are, speaking of Israel, you are my my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. And then a few chapters later, in Isaiah 49, God said, listen, I will make you, Israel, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so from the very beginning of God's redemption story, it was not just about Israel. It was not just about this little piece of land in the Middle East. From the very beginning of God's redemptive story, it was so much bigger. Israel was to be a light, testifying, witnessing to the glory of God's salvation. It was to be a comprehensive plan. We know going all the way back to Abraham, the promise made to Abraham was what? That from your seed, singular, Christ, many nations will be blessed. Every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. That's God's great plan. Far bigger than the disciples. I think far bigger than ours at times as well. Israel failed in being the light and the witness to the Gentiles. So the true Israel, Jesus Christ, came And he fulfilled this promise. Jesus Christ, the perfect servant of the Lord, he gives his life on Calvary, overcomes the power of sin and death, that the gospel might be set in motion. Not just in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria, but literally to the ends of the earth, San Jose, California. And he called the apostles to this great work. They're thinking so small. They're thinking we'll have some national power here in Jerusalem. And he said, no, you're going to have power way beyond your thoughts. And I'm going to send you on a mission that's going to save people's souls from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not just Samaria, but literally to the ends of the earth. Proclaiming and testifying to what? Salvation by grace through the life, death, and resurrection of the Savior. They were eyewitnesses to the gospel. They were to bring this to the very ends of the earth. Jesus was calling them to be witnesses. Now, most of you know that that word. You even know it in the Greek, martus, where we get the word martyr. But Christ uses it earlier in the gospel accounts when he's talking about someone testifying in a court of law. So you can say a witness is someone who's testifying to what they know to be true. And so the apostles were commissioned to go out and to testify to the truth of the gospel of Christ. This wasn't a story, and it wasn't a myth, and it wasn't some adjunct to the Jewish faith. They were to say that Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose, and anybody who puts their faith in him can rise too. They were to testify to this absolute truth that anyone, anyone, Jew or Gentile, who recognized the holiness of God and the depth of their sin and repented in their heart 
and then put their faith in Jesus Christ, anyone would be saved and be brought into this great kingdom. Forgiven of their sins, inheriting eternal life, escaping the wrath of God, and becoming a witness too. He says, oh, I like that first part, Pastor. I love the thought that Christ has forgiven me of my sins. I love that the wrath of God is no longer upon me. I love the thought the Holy Spirit dwells in me and I have eternal life right now. But I don't like the thought of being a witness. Not here. And this is a very mean place. This is a hostile world that we live in. If i got to testify, then I'm in danger. And I'm in danger. My beloved, if you are a Christian, you are a witness. You are a witness. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And the Holy Spirit power has equipped you, even if you don't believe it, to be a glorifying witness to God too. To testify to what? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To tell people about what? Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. To reveal with your mouth and your lives that Christ lives. And because Christ lives, you live. And because Christ lives, they can live. A true witness. A true testimony. Now some commentators argue that, I hate this argument too, they believe that because Paul ends, the book ends with Paul in Rome, that the end of the earth was literally the center of the Gentile world, which had been Rome. But I, I think the scriptures would teach, and a better literal meaning of this would be the end of the earth or the ends of the earth. And that means this kingdom testimony, this kingdom of God coming, initiated by Jesus Christ, given to the 12 apostles, and spread by the early church is still true and still spreading. It's still true. There's nothing changed about this message, and it's still spreading through true witnesses, through true churches, that Christ lives. If you're a Christian, you are a witness. I'll say that a third time. If you are a Christian, you are a witness. You have been empowered and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you have been set on commission by Christ Jesus. He's our King. You've been called by Him to what? Proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, to build up the church. If this is revelatory to you, I praise God. Hear it and say, Amen. If you already know it and you're not doing it, then say, Lord, forgive me that I might. The only question if you are a Christian, is how are you witnessing? It's really the only question. You are a witness if you're truly saved. The Spirit dwells in you. The only question is, how are you witnessing? How are you testifying? With your mouth and with your life, what does that look like? Are you participating in this grand adventure of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Here, us being where? At the very ends of the earth relative to Jerusalem. No San Jose when Christ was walking around. Not San Jose proper anyway. My beloved, maybe, maybe you're like the disciples before Pentecost. And you, you want the kingdom to come, but you want it to come in a little different way. I would say most Western Christians love thinking about Christ coming again in glory with all the angels and all the saints. And we, what's he going to do? He's going to bring heaven to earth. And we think about that and we rejoice in it. But as soon as we're called to work too, I think many Western Christians are not so happy with that part of the teaching. I like, I like him coming. I don't like the work part. Matthew chapter 24, you heard a piece of it. Jesus said, who then is the faithful and wise servant? The servant whom his master finds working when he comes. Who's the faithful servant? The one that the master finds working when he returns. Now, we already established we don't know when he's coming back. Could be tonight. You're not supposed to ask that question. We're supposed to be faithful workers. 
Not working to be saved, but working out of our salvation. We're saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. You have been saved and equipped and empowered with talents, resources, to do what? To do kingdom work. So what's the kingdom work? Life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Testifying to the world that he lives. I, I do believe had the disciples been given an opportunity to vote, their plan, Jesus, you stay. Don't go anywhere. Don't do any of that ascension thing. You stay. You ascend the throne of David. You take over Israel. We rule with you here on earth. Their plan, compared to God's plan, Christ would ascend, send the Holy Spirit, and equip the apostles and the church for 2,000 plus years now to be witnesses to the world. If I had to guess, they had voted for their own plan. My beloved, whenever, listen, whenever we neglect this most basic calling of our faith to be witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace, we are voting against God's plan too. Whenever we do not live as the witnesses that we are, we are saying to God, we do not like your plan, Lord. We want to live out our plan. We'll use all the gifts and all the talents and all the resources and all the blessings for ourselves. My career, my school, my children, my entertainment, instead of the proclamation to the lost and the making of disciples and the building up of the church, which is what true witnesses do. We will live our lives as we think best and then bring the kingdom in when it's convenient. Sunday mornings are relatively convenient. This is not a great testimony to being faithful witnesses. This is a very safe place. We cannot say we are being faithful, wise servants, and not serve. You may be caught off guard. You may hear verse 25 in Matthew 24 that Kirk read again, where that servant is cut to pieces and thrown out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a serious matter. It's a gospel issue. Imagine if your father was a prominent doctor who discovered a cure for all cancer. He established a hospital in Chicago exclusively designed to treat cancer patients. And as he got older, he set his oldest son over it. The son was perfectly obedient to the father's wishes, giving his life to keep the hospital open and accessible to the public. Before the oldest brother died, though, he called you and your children and your children's children to continue the work. All of you were recipients of the medicine, and all of you were cancer survivors, too. He called you to not only keep the hospital open and running, but he wanted you to start more hospitals through cities throughout the world that more people might be saved from this deadly disease. Your father was a multi-billionaire and left a substantial trust fund to finance his wishes so that money would never be an issue at keeping these hospitals running. And your father, knowing that you and your children's lives were saved by this medicine, would be so grateful that surely it would be your wishes to keep the hospital going as well. Early on, more hospitals were started and many sick people were being healed. But as time passed, the mission changed there were still millions of sick and dying cancer patients every year, but the third and the fourth and the fifth generations no longer saw curing cancer as the primary mission. They turned their hospitals into counseling centers, and instead of offering medicine to the sick and dying, they promoted a variety of self-healing techniques and alternative lifestyles. They promoted that which did not save. Some of the hospitals became so bold that instead of offering people the cure that they needed to live and calling them to share that cure with others, 
they would gather their patients together weekly. They'd read stories from an ancient book. They'd tell them how to live a better life now, and they'd entertain them with some good music and food, all the while watching them die. After some time, the hospitals were no longer recognized as hospitals. And the cure for cancer, although abundant and freely accessible, was rarely offered to those who came and almost never shared by patients who had been cured. My beloved, God's plan is for the saving medicine of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be taken to the ends of the earth that those who are dying from their sins might be saved. And that plan includes you. It includes this church. Sinners, saved by grace, receiving the cure of the blood of Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, empowered to be witnesses in San Jose, in Santa Clara, in California, and yes, us to the ends of the earth. The mission has not changed. The only question is, will we participate? Over the next several months, we will see how the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, planted spiritual hospitals in the first century that saved many souls. And it is my prayer that as we follow in the footsteps of the apostles in the early church, that we will not only be edified, but we will be encouraged to do the same life-saving work to live our lives as the witnesses that we are, testifying to the power of a resurrected Savior to redeem and make alive sinners like us, participating in the great adventure and bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dying world. That is my hope. I will be praying for that over the next several months. Please pray the same that we might not be here a year from now, unchanged. If so, we're in trouble. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that it is your desire to bring yourself glory. We know that you will not be glorified in any church that does not submit to and work in the power of the Holy Spirit. You will not be glorified in any church that has the power of the Spirit but does not do the very basic work of the witness. Each and every one of us was suffering from the spiritual cancer of sin. And by sending your son to the cross, you saved us from that death. Every single one of us, in the power of the Holy Spirit, knows the gospel. And so we are truly without excuse for not sharing with others. Father, we live in a very dark place. We are surrounded by those who are sick and dying. You have given us the medicine of the gospel as a cure for their dying souls. Forgive us, Father, for not sharing it widely. Forgive us for not telling our neighbors and our family and our friends that they don't have to be sick and die. Forgive us, Father, for over the past 20 years if we have ever turned this hospital into a counseling center. If we've been more engaged in the entertainment and the food than in the saving of souls. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us and may it never be. I ask, Lord, for a complete and total transformation of this family to be so set on the mission of Christ that we've been given so overwhelmed by the love that Christ has for us and the sacrifice that he made 
so indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that it would be impossible for us not to witness and testify. Father, we want to see what took place in the book of Acts take place here. In this church and in this city. We want it for your glory. I pray you do it for our blessing as well. Give us ears to hear this message today. In Christ's holy name, amen.